I invite you to turn your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 again, um, though we will be focusing more on the middle and end portion of this section. We focused on the the first uh, three to four verses last week, and we're going to continue to work through this. This is one Uh, of the most amazing paragraphs in the scripture in the way that it summarizes so succinctly and and so deeply and meaningfully this work of God in Christ in us and through us in the world. Uh, So Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we come to you through your word now, or more appropriately, as you come to us through your word, we ask that you indeed would speak. These are not dead words on a page that reflect past ideas and and prejudices, but this is the living word that you breathed out for the purpose of helping us understand your heart and your mind, conforming us to those eternal purposes. So Lord, as we we listen today, fill us with holy reverence and true humility before your word, that we would allow your word to sift through us, testing our thoughts and our attitudes conforming us into the radiance of your purity, leading our faith to be strengthened, leading our eyes to be focused squarely upon Christ once again, that we may benefit from your majestic love and authority and the power of a word that cannot fail. So Lord, may your truth prevail within us as every one of us comes before you tempted Tempted not to believe you fully. 
break through that, Lord. But we need you to do so. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Throughout this letter so far, we have been highlighting this extravagance of God in Jesus Christ. Extravagant grace and an extravagant glory. That our triune God is the most glorious and beautiful and eternal. There is nothing more pure. There is nothing more holy. There is nothing that is more true or good, or beautiful. And he has been pleased to share that with us. Not because we asked him to. Because he set his heart upon us before he ever made us. Beloved, what Paul has been unfolding for us is That for a church that needs to grow and needs to mature in its faith, there is no greater thing than for you to have this vision of God that reflects God's vision of himself. A God-centered vision in which God has his glory as, as the purpose for which he is doing everything, both in terms of original creation and especially with regards to new creation as Paul is unfolding it here for us in Ephesians 1 and 2. God created for his glory and God is redeeming for the, the metaphor that, that Paul uses here, a metaphor isn't, isn't even a, a good technical description. But what Paul is setting before you is that God created you for his glory. But we did not embrace that glory. We traded that glory for created things. His creation, which was a reflection of his truth, his goodness, and his beauty, which was to be conduits through which we would taste of him, and that we would experience him, and that we would give ourselves to him. Instead, what we did through Adam was we said, yeah, we'll take the gifts, but we don't want the giver. And we fell. And as we looked last week, that fall, that that fall from our original state in creation, that that state of being innocent before God, when we fell from that, we died in our sins. Died in those sins. That death was not a physical death at that point yet. But it was a death that certainly rendered us incapable of functioning as God designed us. God designed our minds to be given to him. Instead, through our thinking after the fall, what we do is we we contemplate the world and we come up with ways of explaining the world and, and explaining what is happening and how to go about things by cutting him out. 
so that our minds were affected by the fall. Our hearts were affected by the fall. So that being dead in our sins doesn't mean that we stopped feeling, but our feelings became became thwarted, they became, they became fallen. And that emotional aspect of, of being created in God's image, which is to lead us to celebrate God and to become ecstatic over who he is and what it means to be his. Instead, those emotions are put into service of ourselves, of our own desires, our own preferences. Instead of getting stoked about who God is, our hands, our service, which was meant to be used by Adam in the garden to guard and keep that holy sanctuary in original creation. Instead, he used his hands to take what God had said not to take. And he used his mouth to eat what God had said not to eat. Rather than his body being used in service to the Lord according to the, what the Lord had revealed, he was using his body to serve himself. Do you see the developing theme here? That when Paul is unfolding for us what it means for us to be dead in our sins, in our trespasses, it is, it is not just this general state of things. It is our minds and our hearts and our hands in the fall became dedicated to the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's what happened in the fall is that these different amazing capacities that God gave us to use for his glory and for his service, instead we have used for ourselves. And what Paul says is this, is the uniform experience of everyone born from Adam and Eve. And this is a dreadful uniform experience. what it has resulted in is being captive to sin and to death with no ability to be free. It has led to being deceived by the evil one and being used by him to bear witness to his rebellious counter-kingdom. And it has led, even for those in covenant with God, to become children of his wrath. Not a great uniform experience. Now, as Paul is unfolding this, you'll, you'll notice here uh, and later in chapter 2 that he keeps going back and forth between these, prepos uh, the, these pronouns of you versus we. You in the plural, we obviously in the plural. I, I really think that we need to get more Southerners on these translations committees and get some y'alls in there because it would be so much easier 
for us to know what's being said. But what Paul is doing here is he is talking to a church of young believers uh, that consists of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And those two groups didn't always get along all that well, believe it or not, early on. And, and so part of what Paul is explaining is for the Gentiles who have come into the covenant as those who are far off, according to Peter uh, in, 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 uh, in Acts chapter 2, that as those who are far off and who have been brought in, that is definitely their experience. And the Jewish believers would have said, yeah, would have said what? Well, of course, they're, they're Gentile dogs. Of course, it's clear that they were born dead in their sins, and deceived and children of wrath. Paul points out is, and so were we. Being a Jew, being one who had inherited the covenant, testimony, the redemptive work of God, being freed from bondage and slavery in Egypt, that did not mean that you were free of the covenant curse. And even those in covenant with God who had all these amazing, wonderful promises and privileges were also equally with the Gentiles deceived, captive, and children. What do you, what did you need to be saved from. You needed to be saved from yourself. You needed to be saved from the evil one. And you needed to be saved from God. That it is a children, or to be a child of God's holy wrath. He will uphold the truth and goodness and beauty of himself against sin, death, and rebellion. Simply being in the covenant was not enough. Jewish believers needed to understand that. And oftentimes, guys, I often feel like American conservative Presbyterianism or or reformed circles that sometimes we have developed the same attitude of the Jew. I mean, we've got covenant in our name. How much better off can we be? And we rightly celebrate the covenant. I have had the best time the last couple Sundays with the kids in Sunday school as we have been talking about what it means to be in covenant and, and the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And, and when you look at Genesis 17 and Acts 2, you've got the same threefold description. That the promises of the covenant are for you, the believer. The promises are for your children. And the promises are for all those who are far off. In other words, Gentiles. Guess what, beloved? I'm pretty sure almost everyone in this room fits into the Gentile category. God has brought us into this covenant 
And he has given the promises of this covenant to our children. And he has given the sign uh, and the seals of this covenant to our kids. We must never remember, or must never forget. By nature of being born under the headship of Adam, they are born and in need of salvation. They need to be saved from their covenant God who says, you are mine. They still have to be saved from that. His holiness requires that his children be saved from that. What has Christ done for us? himself fatherless and he perfectly kept every commandment of perfectly embodied covenant fidelity and devotion and what did he receive for that faithfulness the opportunity to become a suffering substitutionary where he as the faithful son took on the status of unfaithful son so that you as unfaithful sons and daughters of the covenant might be saved from God unto God and given by free gift, the grace to now be considered by your heavenly Father one of his perfect covenant-keeping sons and daughters. Beloved, in Christ, not in the covenant, in Christ, you are no longer a son or daughter. That is not how God looks upon you in Christ. Instead, he has given you a free, a free gift of the extravagant grace of his love in kindness to you and his son. And what was his purpose here? His purpose, first we are told, was to bring you out of death and into life. You've got to be made alive. You were trapped in sin and death. You were condemned in sin and death. You were under wrath in sin and death. You were deceived in sin and death. You were part of a counterfeit kingdom that has an end appointed in fire. And so what did you need? You needed to be made alive. And you could never have made yourself alive. But he did. And he's made you alive. More than that, in making you alive by joining you to his son, right? At the end of chapter one, the same power that God used in raising Jesus from the dead is the power at work in those who were trusting in Jesus Christ. And so that power of God united you to his son. 
and you have been made alive, and just like Jesus, you have been exalted and raised up and seated with Christ at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And I don't care what you experienced this last week that is tempting you to call that into question. That is your reality. And that is a gift. For by grace you have been saved. If this is by grace, beloved, it cannot hinge on you. And just to make sure that we have even less reason to try to put it on ourselves. Paul goes on to say it's not only by grace you have been saved, he goes on to explicitly state, not of works. Because there's nothing for you to be able to boast about. Because apart from his initiation to you in Jesus Christ, you are dead. And your mind and your heart and your will are all given over to serving the evil one and serving yourself as a captive of the kingdom of darkness. The king of light has burst into your heart. He has caused the deception of the darkness to be cleared away. He, he has broken the power of the evil one to influence you and to lie to you and to deceive you. He has brought you out of that kingdom and set you into the kingdom of, of light in which the Spirit of God has taken up residence within you. So that you are not a slave are free he has done all of this so that you would celebrate him would stop trying to build yourself up into something that you don't have to anymore because by grace faith not of your works, not of your efforts. And what do are we told here is this ultimate purpose of God. He wants it to be about Him so that you spend the rest of eternity shining as a trophy of what He has done. You're a trophy. That's what you are. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, I know I've got a trophy wife. Right, Lauren? Right? Amen. I know what you feel, brother. You are a trophy to God's grace and kindness in Christ. That's your purpose now. That your purpose, both now, today, not just in the worship service, but especially when you're driving down the road in your car in, in, the, in the West Cobb, East Paulding traffic, 
You are to shine as a trophy of the reality of the work of God in Jesus Christ. That's what your privilege is now. You no longer, to put it a different way, you are no longer someone whose life is bearing witness to the dark counterfeit kingdom of the evil one. Because guess what? There is no middle ground. Your life exists now to shine, to reflect a glory that has come from God that is never ending. It never started and it will never end. And that glory has been gifted to you. Not because you earned it. Because Christ earned it. And Christ has said, hey, where Adam brought you into sin and death, I will bring you What does this mean? How do you serve as a trophy of God's grace? Well, in the heavenly places, we, we see unfolded for us very clearly. For example, in the book of Revelation, so many of these different worship services that we see where the people of God are, are surrounding the throne of grace and are reflecting back the glory of the triune God and lifting voices in praise, in adoration, where hearts, head, and hands are being given to reflect that glory back to the Lord as out of the joy, the inexpressible joy of being in God's unmediated glory. Until that time comes, beloved, the good works that you will be doing in that place, all to do now. This whole faith versus works conversation that so often happens in reform circles uh, about trying, you know, where you get these radical grace people that want to say, man, it's all of grace. And so until Jesus comes, you just kick back on your spiritual recliner because everything's perfect. And then you have those others that are like, no, 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 that's wrong. And guess what? The people critiquing that are right. That's wrong. That is not what grace results in. But guess what? We're not going to get to the truth by diminishing grace and making it about your efforts. We're not going to correct the, the, the radical grace people by saying that, well, there's not as much grace as you think, and there is stuff that you are supposed to be doing in order to maintain what you've been given. There are two types of legalism. There's a legalism that says, you work hard, you be righteous, and God will reward your efforts by granting you righteousness and salvation, right? That's the obvious legalism that we are really good at spotting and saying, no, 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 no. But there's another legalism that we love to flirt with. And that is the legalism of, of course, my righteous standing was given to me as a gift of grace. But if I want to maintain that standing, then I need to fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, and fill in the blank. What's really neat 
even in reform circles, is how creative we get with the, with the works that we like to hoist onto ourselves. And what Christy and I have gotten experience is there are versions of this, like in central Florida, there are versions of this in the south. There are some interesting versions of this when we were up in Pittsburgh. Not all the same things, but it is the same process that we're going to somehow add some extra requirements to us, not, not to save us, we all know that's wrong, but to maintain what we have, to keep what we have. In by grace, but we stay in through works. And beloved, that is a legalism that gets in the way of you celebrating the, the work of God in Christ in you, which is the very thing that you need in order to put that work of God on display through your works. Beloved, you have been created in Christ to keep the law. And for all eternity, guess what you will be doing? You will be keeping the law. You will match up perfectly to the righteous requirements that God put into his law. You don't wait until then to do so, though. And that is because the very grace that saves us is the grace that empowers us to live as those. See, it's, it's a grace that saves. It is grace that empowers good works. Beloved, you are God's workmanship. He made you. You fell. He's remade you in Christ. He is forming you, and he is fashioning you, and he is making you true. He is making you good, and he is making you beautiful in Jesus Christ, and forevermore, that's what you will be. Do it now. Give yourself to the celebration of the complete work of Jesus Christ now so that you will overwhelm your heart and your head and your hands with who you are in Christ now so that you will learn to grow and mature. And guess what? For some of you, it may come in quick bursts, for others, it may come very, very slowly. Just ask Christy and how it has looked like in my life. Sometimes you're even wondering, is, is there anything going on in there? You are his, and he is forming you as the perfect creator, potter, workman. He is doing something. Cultivate what he is doing in your soul. Stay away from these extremes of, of, you know, these extremes of grace and law and all that and hold them together as they were held together in the devotion of Jesus Christ. Devotion. Devote yourself to who you are in Christ. Devote yourself to that new privilege you have as serving as an eternal trophy to God's grace in kindness. Give yourself to those things. And I guarantee to you, beloved, when you do so, you will find your heart and your head 
and your hands becoming more and more captivated by Christ and giving yourself in your thoughts, in your feelings, and in your doing to Christ. And the law of God that is beautiful start to shine forth out of your heart and hands in love. And the people around you see the difference. And if they're believers, guess what they'll do? They'll be like, God is at work in your life and I see it and it is so encouraging to me. And what they will do is glorify the Lord. Unbelievers will see it and they'll go, why are you so weird? Why can you be joyful when things are bad? Why don't you get caught up in all the politics? Why aren't you getting caught up and and getting bent out of shape by every little thing like everyone else is today? How is it that you are steady and loving and kind and patient and humble when nothing else seems to, 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 to be that way in this life? And guess what you get to do? You get to point them to the humble, patient, loving, merciful, kind, devoted You get to reflect God's glory to that unbeliever in that moment. Beloved, this is who we are as, as those who are have been freed to living among the captives. Freed to bear witness to God, to his glory, as we taste it, as we savor it, as we see it, and then giving ourselves cultivating minds and hearts and hands that are given today in doing what we will do forever as those shining as the trophies of God's impeccable worship. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, impress upon us just how amazing the gift is and protect us from minimizing how, off, how, how awesome the gift is by wanting to add our efforts and, and to add our intentions, uh, to add our, our attitudes or to add whatever, Lord. Help us not to detract from how awesome your work is. Help us not to try to squeeze in or, or wiggle in in, in, in order to, um, to squeeze you out of the process. But may the entirety of our of our hearts and our hands and our heads be given to glorifying you both now and forevermore as we taste and see that you are good. And so, Lord, bless us that we would be a people of good works because you made us for them and because we will do them forevermore. Father, keep us from putting that off And instead, help us this week to take a a step of faith and to try something new this week where we trust you, where we step out in faith, and we bear witness to you in a new and different way than what we have done before. And then overwhelm us with your presence as you make yourself known to us, even as through us you make yourself known to those. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.